Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Manchester City and Everton left-back Paul Power about his Focus On interview for Shoot magazine from around 1980, give or take a year, and a player profile in the match annual from the 1987-88 season. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at the Set Pieces website, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Uh, Paul Christopher Power. Birthplace and date? Uh, I was born in Openshaw uh, in Manchester on the 30th of October 1953. Uh, height? Uh, I am still uh, about five foot ten and a half, five foot eleven. And uh, the big important question is do you still weigh 11 stone six? I wish. No, <laughs> unfortunately, I am. Well, I live in France now, so I weigh myself in uh, kilos. So I'm, I'm about uh, 85 kilos, which is uh, which is about uh, 13, between 13 and a quarter and 13 and a half stone. Well, a couple of stone is not not too much to have added in uh, since you since you packed in playing. Um, welcome yes, to the podcast, Paul. How are you doing? Yeah, doing uh, doing really well, thanks. Enjoying enjoying life at the moment. We moved uh, or retired to uh, to France about six years ago, and um, I now live um, in a, a region of France called the Aude, which is quite. It's about sort of uh, forty forty five minutes from the Spanish border, so not not far from the Pyrenees. So we've had some good weather um, of late, and usually we do anyway. So. Uh, uh, very much enjoying life here. Brilliant. Um, well, as I mentioned in uh, our introduction, we've actually got a couple of your profiles to quiz you about, with the first one published in Shoot magazine around 1980-81, uh, when you were fully ensconced in the Manchester City first team. Indeed, you were the captain at that time. But um, let's ask you a little bit more about what came before that, because as Shoot alludes to uh, in the question, if not a player, what job would you do? Uh, as a youngster, you had your eyes in a career in law rather than football. Uh, tell us about that and, and how your mind was changed. Uh, yeah, well, I um, I started playing for Man City as a as a like a fourteen year old. Um, a, they had a, a famous scout called Harry Godwin who uh, who was watching a, a Sunday league game. I used to play for a, a Sunday team in Widdenshaw, Manchester, called. Uh, West Park Albion, and uh, he was watching us play in um, a semi-final of a cup competition in North Manchester. He lived in North Manchester, uh, and uh, he approached our manager um, at the end of the game, and he said, uh, "I like the look of your left winger. You know, is there any chance of uh, having a meeting with his with his parents?" So um, Des Rowley, the name of the the manager, he he. Uh, said have a word with him after the game and we arranged for him to come on the Monday night um, and he, he went for a drink with my dad at a pub in Withenshaw called the Cock of the North and, and uh, they decided between them that uh, it might be a good idea if I went down to City a couple of evenings a week 
um, Tuesday and Thursday evenings a week, like, you know, and then uh, uh, they'd, they'd have a chance to look at me and, you know, assess me alongside uh, a lot of the other youngsters that were there at the time. But at the time, there was no, there was no um, team for like under 14s. It wasn't like it is now where they start under nines, you know. Uh, mm. Then it was just under 16s, uh, like the B team, as it was called. And the A team was under 18s, and then the reserves. So, uh, so you had to sort of build your way up to it. Um, but anyway, they decided that I was too small, um, and City um, let me go. And then I was playing for Manchester Boys under 17s team against Ayrshire Boys, and Harry Godwin was watching that game as well, and uh, he, he noticed that I'd um, shot up a little bit and put a bit of weight on, and. Uh, and he invited me back. So then I started playing um, for the uh, B team. And I played one game for the B team, got straight into the A team because I was the right age for that. But by that time, I'd, I'd applied to go to um, university to study law. And my mum was the big influence behind that. She uh, she was always keen to, uh, to advance my... Uh, Education. My dad was more into the football, as you might imagine. So, anyway, I, I decided that um, I'd, uh, having been accepted at Leeds Polytechnic to study a, a law degree, I decided that I'd, uh, I'd carry on doing it until I failed the law degree. And then, uh, once I failed, I'd then consider signing full time for Manchester City if the offer came. You know. But um, anyway, I kept I kept passing at the end of each year. And then uh, when I got my law degree, uh, Tony Book was my manager. Uh, Johnny Hart, before him, was uh, gave me my chance in the reserves. And I played alongside Glyn Pardo in the reserves because he was coming back from that horrendous injury, uh, sustained in a tackle with George Bess. Uh, so he played at left back and I played uh, left side midfield. And I got loads and loads of help from him. Um, and then uh, I think he put in a good word for me uh, with uh, Tony Book. And uh, Tony Book decided, uh, you know, that they'd take, uh, take a chance on offering me um, uh, a pro contract. And, and, that, and that was it. That was the end of my law history, if you like. Uh, although there was a, a director at uh, Manchester City called Michael Horwich. And he had, a, he had um, a partnership in Manchester called Horwich, Farrelly and Flax. And he invited me on my day off to go into the office because he encouraged me to to, to carry on uh, my sort of uh, legal training, if you like. And because I'd not at that point got anywhere near the first team, I decided to go in and uh, and carry on and do some stuff. So uh, so I did that for a while, and then when I got into the first team and became established. Um, I stopped that and just can, uh, sort of concentrated on my um, concentrated on my football. Yeah. Um, apparently, uh, the biggest influence on your career was a Mr. Howells, your school sports master. Do you still remember him? <laughs> I do indeed. Uh, uh, he was a, a top top coach. Not, I mean, not just a teacher. You know, he was a PE teacher, but he was a top coach. He. Uh, encouraged, supported, you know, all the things that I'd like to think that, uh, that I was as a coach when I, when I finished my playing career. But, um, yeah, he was, 
he was a big influence because the headmaster at my school was um, not keen on people representing uh, the town at football, although he was quite happy to let other players represent Manchester at rugby, you know, so there was a bit of a, um, a conflict there. And uh, my dad went in for a meeting with the headmaster and Mr. Hells came in the meeting with us and he supported us 100%, you know, so that's really what got um, me onto the trials for Manchester boys. I got onto this team and then, of course, uh, Harry Godwin saw me playing uh, in that game. So, so it was the... Uh, it was the start, really, of a of a football career. And Denny has uh, a lot to thank for that. Yeah. Well, you, you told Shoots that your childhood football hero was Colin Bell. So not only mm-hmm. did you live the schoolboy dream and play for and captain the team you supported, but you also played alongside your idol growing up. Um, in the last decade, Manchester City have been blessed with any number of world-class talents like David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, Yaya Toure and so on. But for fans of a certain age, Bell is almost universally heralded as the club's greatest ever player. What what was it about him that made him so revered? Uh, and it must have been such a thrill for you to line up with him when you broke into that first team. Well, yeah, because when I was a student, uh, we didn't have any lectures on a Monday morning. So I used to go, I used to play for the reserves on a Saturday. And I used to go and we had a running session every Monday morning at Windsor Park. And uh, I used to go uh, and join in that and then get the train uh, straight to university for lectures in, on the Monday afternoon. And um, what impressed me about Colin, he could do everything. He could do anything on the running track. He could sprint, he could uh, run a distance. And, he, and I, was, I was a decent runner. And there were others like Colin Barrett and, uh, and Frank Carradus who were, who were good runners as well. Alan Oakes was a good runner. Uh, Glyn Pardo was a great sprinter. Franny Lee could sprint, Mike Summerby could sprint, but they couldn't run the distance. He could do everything, you know. And mm. um, and I used to train with him, and, and he'd just be sort of gliding along on your shoulder. And I was like breathing through my backside, you know, trying <laughs> to keep up with these uh, full-time pros. And he'd almost take the mickey. It was that easy for him, like, you know. And uh, mm. uh, But he was really... Um, Humble with it, you know. He, he, he never never came across as big-headed or uh, the big I am England international, you know. In fact, my probably my favourite player at the time was Neil Young because he was a left winger, a tall, elegant, long-legged left winger, uh, you know, mm. that I aspired to be really. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have either of their ability, and I ended up as a left back. But there you go. Um, if we jump now then to the 1980-81 season and you're, you're the captain of Manchester City uh, and while they were not the dominant force in English football like they are today, you were still a, a well-respected side. Um, you're not cruising around town in a Bentley or Ferrari as your equivalent would be these days. You were driving a Ford Escort 1600 gear. Now, I'm no expert, mm-hmm. I'm no expert on cars of any era, era, but I know that back in the day, the suffix gear meant that it was the, the fancy version of a particular model. Do you remember that car? Uh, and who else at Manchester City owned a, a flashy motor? Uh, I remember that car really well. In fact, I was, I was driving it the night I met my wife. The, f- <laughs> the first night I, uh, uh, I arranged to take my wife out, she thought I was driving a white BMW with a, with a black soft top, like, you know, but it, 
but it turned out it was a, a white um, escort gear. So I think when I see it in the light, uh, when I picked her up to take her out, she was maybe a little bit disappointed. <laughs> but, and uh, probably the best car that I ever drived during my whole career was, uh, was a Saab. Uh, because City was sponsored by Saab and we, we got decent deals on those, like, you know, so. Mm -hmm. But I've never been one to be influenced by, uh, uh, by cars. I think Danny Stewart at the time uh, had a, a limited edition um, BMW Sports. Uh, was it BMW? Or, no, MGB Sports. Mm. So it was a green and gold uh, with a private registration. Uh, Rodney Marsh uh, always drove a, a little bit bigger version, uh, flashier car. But, but generally, uh, the players were, were pretty level-headed. I remember Kenny Clements, who was my best mate at the time, uh, just drove a Mini, you know. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, we were, we were pretty grounded. We didn't earn that much money then. I mean, 45 quid a week and we were playing in the first team, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, there wasn't that much left to uh, to squander on uh, on a nice four wheels um your favorite singers back in 1980-81 were apparently they were billy joel paul simon and carly simon which are all decent choices uh are you still listening to them or who are you listening to these days yeah i do i mean I, i've all, i've never been one to uh, uh to follow music myself i've always been influenced by people around me you know mm -hmm. so uh, when I was at university, I shared a, I shared a house with um, um, Paul, a lad called Paul Hines, who was from uh, Lanchester in Durham. He, uh, he was a big sort of country rock, uh, Lindy Spahn, Paul Simon, Carly Simon, that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, so I was influenced greatly by that as a student. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, and then I got married and... And Julie, my wife, is a big Rod Stewart fanatic, you know, and we we, uh, we listen to a lot of Paul Carrick and, uh, um, but, but yeah, all the same sort of genre. I, I'm not, I don't follow music that much now, although Julie does. Mm. And uh, so it's always in the background and I, you know, I, I listen, I listen to what I like, but I still really like uh, Paul Simon, Carly Simon, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Billy Joel certainly, uh, you know, I was brought up on that. The Eagles, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still yeah. listen to it. All the, class the classics are there. <laughs> well, your favourite TV stars in the same era were Penelope Keith, uh, and she seemed to be a popular choice in these things, uh, and the recently departed comedian Eddie Large, who was a big Manchester City fan. I I'm guessing you must have met Eddie uh, during your time at Main Road. Eddie used to come in the dressing room every uh, before every match, and uh, I think... Tony Book, who, used to, who was the manager at the time, he used to encourage that because he felt that Eddie used to get everybody relaxed. You know, he'd, he'd uh, come in and do a few impressions, which he, which he was famous for. And, uh, and he'd, he'd get, you know, the atmosphere a little bit low-key. Mm. Uh, I, think, I think maybe after a while, it might be fair to say that some of the, some of the players that weren't used to him saw him as a bit of a... Nuisance isn't isn't the right word, but you get the you get my drift. It's yeah, you yeah. know, you sort of uh, they, they they'd rather concentrate on the game and focus on what they had to do. Uh, so you know, he uh, he stopped coming in the dressing room, but um, he used to come in and uh, he, he was uh, 
he was good uh, from my point of view, definitely as a captain of the team. You know, he would uh, he would get everybody uh, chilled out. Can I just say, I don't I don't know where I got Penelope Keith from because. <laughs> Probably at that time, I used to watch uh, a program on telly called Heart to Heart. Oh yeah, and the and the star of that was uh, the female star of that was uh, Stephanie Powers, and um, my daughter, my, our our second child. When when uh, when we found out it was going to be a little girl, we decided to call her Stephanie. Like you know, so oh, yeah. if I was to answer that, if I was to answer that question now, I would say that. Uh, Probably Stephanie Powers was uh, was uh, more likely to be a favourite than Penelope. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as I said, back to the football, uh, and you captain Manchester City in that famous 1981 FA Cup final, and the even more famous replay against Tottenham Hotspur. Um, you actually played a pretty uh, vital role in the run to Wembley, which included scoring the winner in the semi-final against Ipswich Town at Villa Park. What do you remember about that goal? I remember uh, at the end of the game, Ipswich had been strong, strong favourites uh, for that game. My brother-in-law, Julie's, Julie's uh, brother, uh, Billy, he a big Man United fan, you know, and he said, he said, I'll tell you what, if you, if you beat Ipswich and you get to Wembley, I'll wear all blue for the final, right, you know. And uh, I said, right, I'll hold you to that. He knew that Ipswich were strong, strong favourites. You know, uh, uh, they had a top team at the time, uh, captain by Mick Mills, and uh, you know they had the two Dutch players, Tyson and Muren, and they um, uh, they they were top of the league, strong favourites to beat Manchester City in the semi final. And um, but we'd agreed that uh, that if we got a free kick anywhere around the outside of the area. Um, Steve McKenzie had touched it onto me, and the player from the edge of the edge of the wall, who always come and close the ball down to prevent the shot, uh, would come off the wall. I would knock it to the side again for Tommy Caton to come and strike it with his left foot. And um, anyway, we got the we got the uh, the free quick kick that was won by uh, Dave Bennett, and. Um, Steve McKenzie knocked it to me. Nobody came off the edge of the wall. Nobody came to close the ball down. So I thought, for a penny in for a pound, really. And it was, uh, it was. Uh, I always remember uh, Brian Kidd used to say, "If you don't win, a, if you don't buy a raffle ticket, you won't win a prize." So I thought, right, I'm going to buy a raffle ticket here, and I, uh, I decided to have a shot. And Manchester City with power. And Mackenzie on the ball here this time. Power. Oh, a save and a goal. The skipper who has scored in every cup match bar one. Rifles home a left foot shot. And Manchester City take the lead. In the tenth minute of extra time. Of course, we, we got to Wembley and... Uh, I knew where all the family's tickets were that, that uh, I'd got them. And uh, I looked up in the stand and before the Tottenham game, <clears throat> we were on the pitch and there was Billy in his, uh, he had a blue jumper on, blue shirt, blue trousers. And he put his foot up on the hoardings and he had red socks on and he was, uh, I, couldn't do it. I couldn't do it like, you know, but, 
but that was I mean they were all reds Julie's family were all reds but we we had good banter over the years you know so you were two on up with 20 minutes remaining in the cup final replay. Then along came Garth Crooks first and then uh, Ricky Villa, who won it for Spurs mm-hmm. with his iconic Maisie dribble and finish. Um, losing that uh, FA Cup final, was that the biggest disappointment? Uh, not winning anything with Manchester City because um, in the Shewitt interview, which I assume must have happened before the 81 Cup final, you said the biggest disappointment you had was not playing in the 1976 League Cup final against Newcastle, which of course Manchester City did win. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was uh, I was injured for that game, and I'm, I'm not sure that uh, I would have actually played, um, or not not started, but I would have definitely been sub. Uh, anyway, I had a, a fitness test in the morning, and I thought I could cheat here a little bit. You know, I'm only going to sit on the bench, but if anything did happen and a player got injured and I had to play 80 minutes I didn't think that I'd be able to do that you know so uh, I told Tony Buck that uh, I didn't think I'd be fit enough to um, to participate and uh, so that was a, a big disappointment because uh, I played in the semi-final against Middlesbrough um, which we won 4-1 over the over the two legs and um, you know it was yeah massive disappointment but um, yeah yeah I would have loved to have won something as Manchester City's captain, you know, uh, I always uh, look at pictures around the football club now with Tony Buck being lifted on the players' shoulders, you know, uh, lifting the FA, uh, the FA Cup and other trophies that they won over the years. So uh, it would have been nice to have been a part of Manchester City's history in that respect, but um, it wasn't to be. Uh, but I must say, uh, you're right to draw attention to Ricky Beer's goal, which was a good one, but I think if Ray Ranson had tackled him outside the box and not <laughs> let him get into the box, where they were frightened to tackle him, then you know, uh, yeah. I think we might we might have given ourselves a better chance with perhaps a little bit of inexperience. And at the time, I think Ray was only about nineteen or twenty or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the best goal of that game wasn't Ricky Villas; it was Steve McKenzie's goal, which was an absolute fantastic volley uh, from the edge of the box. You know, and. Not Nobody ever remembers that because of the Ricky Villa goal. So, uh, uh, so I'd just like to remind all the City fans, uh, you know, uh, who scored the best goal in that, in that particular game. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Steve McKenzie and you, you must have a great eye for talent because in that shoot interview, which again, we're assuming happened before the 81 Cup final, um, you, you picked out as your most promising teammate was Steve McKenzie. So you obviously knew what you were looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, Bringing Steve McKenzie to the football club was nothing to do with me. That was all. That was all down to uh, Malcolm Allison. I think mm. uh, he'd seen this young player at Crystal Palace, um, and uh, at the time, I think we signed him as a 17-year-old. You know, mm. uh, great ability on the ball. Probably he's a, he, he reminded me a little bit of Norman Whiteside. You know, although mm-hmm. Norman went on to achieve uh, a lot more than uh, than Steve McKenzie did. Uh, in terms of international appearances, but neither of them were quick. You know, they, yeah. as as the game as the game quickened up, I think they they always seemed to be second to the ball. People beat them to the ball when they had the ball. They were unbelievably talented, you know, and they uh, they had quick feet. They didn't give the ball away. Good passes to the ball. Um, always maintained possession. Um, you know, but but 
as the game became more physical. And today, you know, they, they'd struggle in the game today because, you know, forward players and midfield players are expected to press from the front. Uh, and if you can't do that and get close enough to the ball to win it, then teams will play through you. And I, I think that happened to us, maybe happened to us a little bit with the Spurs, you know, with Ozzy Ardiles and, and Glenn Hoddle. They were able to uh, get on the ball and, and play through us. I think the first game, we expended all, all our energy. We, we should have won the first game. We finished the game much stronger than them. Um, and I think we, we gave everything in that, uh, in that first game. And players like myself, Jerry Gow, um, you know, were, were probably not that much left in the tank, to be fair, when we, when we played the game four, four, four days later in, in the replay. But, um, yeah, yeah, we, we acquitted ourselves really well in, in, uh, in both games and, uh, like I say, disappointed to lose. Yeah. Well, uh, we talked about a promising teammate. Um, your uh, stated most difficult opponent was Liverpool's Jimmy Case. Now, he was a hard man who could obviously play too to get into that Liverpool side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when, when he said most difficult opponent, I think I was probably thinking about most physical opponent. Mm. You know, uh, there, were two, there were two during my career uh, that always caused me problems for different reasons. Um, and that was Jimmy Case and Steve Coppola at Man United. But I knew that if I'd taken the ball past them, then I would never get a free run. Some players you could play against, like Franz Carr, who was a, who was a typical winger at Nottingham Forest. Mm. If I went past him as a fullback, I knew that he wouldn't chase after me, you know. Mm. Uh, so it'd give me a little bit more time on the ball, and all I'd have to concentrate on what I was going to do with, uh, to the player in front of me rather than somebody chasing behind. So Steve Coppola and Jimmy Case, they. Um, uh, I knew that they would not give in. So I'd, I'd have to run the ball at Phil Neal, uh, knowing that Jimmy Case was com- coming at the back of me. And also, if the ball was in the air, if there, was a, if there was a physical challenge, the ball was bouncing between us, I knew that Jimmy Case would go higher than me. You know, So it was sometimes a case of ignore the ball and just go higher than him. You know what I mean? And, and it, it, could be, it could be quite intimidating that way. Mm. Uh, and whereas, whereas Steve Coppel was never like that it was always a fair challenge you know sometimes he'd win sometimes I win but you always knew it was going to be a fair challenge yeah. uh, but, but both talented players in their own right I mean Jimmy Case had that uh, brilliant ability to switch the play from left to right so he'd knock it over to Alan Kennedy uh, or, or Ray Kennedy you know and uh, and then uh, he always causes problems like that because he could switch the play. Yeah. Uh, Steve Coppel would be at your ferreting all the time, so he'd cause you problems around your feet, you know. So, yeah, yeah, good, good times, really. Good, uh, some, some really good um, opponents to test you out. Right, Paul, let's fast forward six or seven years, uh, and after plenty of ups and downs at Main Road, including a relegation in 1983, uh, you got a bit of a surprise move coming when you were almost 33 years old, um, to Howard Kendall's superb Everton team of the mid-1980s. And in your first season, you were a key component in the title-winning side of 1986-87. You got your hands Mm -hmm. on that long-overdue silverware at Goodison. um, And it was uh, 
as you confessed in the, the Match Magazine profile uh, from 1987, um, that the winner's medal was your most treasured football possession. Um, those couple of years at Everton were a great swan song to your playing career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was very, very lucky. I consider myself fortunate. Everton had a good team, um, you know, uh, during that period uh, with the likes of uh, Peter Reid, Kevin Sheedy, uh, Sharpen, Inchy, uh, Neville Southall, of course, Ratcliffe, and uh, well, it was. Um, uh, and then became Dave Watson when uh, when I played with him. You know, he played as centre half with uh, Derek Mountfield before then. They had a a really good side, but I think Howard had a, a problem with um, Pat Van Den Howe. He had a he had a, an infection in his ankle, and uh, I think he he bought me as an exper- experienced left back, probably not intending to use me. Maybe just have me around at the beginning of the season until Pat got himself fully fit. As it turned out, he, he, he was uh, uh, longer in his recovery than they anticipated. And it was just before Christmas that, uh, uh, that, that he got back uh, into the team. And then Kevin Sheedy got injured. So I just moved from left-back up into, into left-side midfield. And my first game as a left-sided midfield player for Everton was against Man City at, uh, at Main Road. And I actually scored the winning goal in that in, in that game. So as I moved further up the pitch, I got I got opportunities to uh, to get closer to the opponent's goal and, uh, and 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 finish a bit more often, you know. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I played forty out of forty-two games for Everton that season. But when Billy McNeil was manager of uh, Manchester City, um, he he came in one morning and he said he said to me. I've just seen the best team performance I've ever seen from any team. And he'd been to Old Trafford to watch uh, Man United against Everton. And Everton beat, I think, it was at, I think it was at Old Trafford. Everton beat Man United anyway, whether it was at Goodison or Old Trafford. He beat them about 5-1. And uh, he said it's the best team performance he'd ever seen. So, you know, for me to get a phone call... While I was away on holiday, because Julie, we just had Stephanie, uh, so we didn't go abroad. She was a, she was just a baby, uh, so we went to um, a hotel in Devon called the Sultan Sands Hotel. I got I got a phone call from there from Jimmy Frizzell, who was uh, Billy McNeil's assistant manager. They had Andy Hinchcliffe coming through, uh, you know, who they knew was a good prospect left back anyway. I'd just signed a one-year contract for City, so if uh, so, if I'd have seen that contract through, it'd have taken me to 33. And in those days, as a 33-year-old, you, you were entitled to a free transfer. Uh, so really, it was good business from the club's point of view. They had an offer from Everton, and um, uh, you know they 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 got 75,000 quid uh, transfer fee, which they wouldn't have got in another year's time. So, and it was a good move for me, obviously, because I was uh, uh, going to play in a stronger team. So, it was a good move for everybody, uh, basically. Um, and uh, Howard Kendall was unbelievable when, when I went to, to sign for him. I mean, I don't know whether you want to hear the stories, but I'm sure a lot of Evertonians would. And mm. I, I, went, I went to meet him at, uh, at um, Goodison. And... Um, he said, well, what, what, what would stop you signing for Everton then? 
So I said, well, there's two things really. One, I'm, I'm still due a testimonial match at Manchester City. It had been, it had been canceled twice, one, once because of the Bradford fire mm. uh, and once because of uh, uh, the police wouldn't police it because of all the trouble with the uh, uh, Leeds and Birmingham game. So those games against Man United had been, uh, been cancelled and I was struggling to get another date off on Atkinson. Um, so I said, you know, I'm entitled to a, 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 I've been there 13 years. He said, right. He said, Everton will play City in a pre-season game. That'll be your testimonial game. You play half for Manchester City and half for Everton. How does that? So I thought, oh, you do for me. You know what I mean? If it's that easy to sort out, why is it taking so long up to now? Anyway, uh, the second thing was I was due a loyalty bonus payment from Manchester City, which um, I had to be at the club on July the 1st to get my loyalty bonus from the season before. This was June the 27th when I was talking to Howard Kendall. Mm. He said, oh, I don't, I don't think there'll be a problem with that. Anyway, he, he, uh, he spoke to Billy McNeil. Billy McNeil didn't know I was in the room, obviously. And he said, what about this loyalty payment is due? And uh, he said, well, he said, if I know my chairman, which was Peter Swales, he said, he won't pay him. He won't pay him the, uh, the loyalty pay payment if he's not there on July the 1st. So I said to Howard, well, will you delay this uh, signing four days so that I can get that money, you know? And, uh, and he said, no. He said, what I'll do, Everton will pay you that money that you do for being loyal to Manchester City all those years. So straight away, I'm thinking, just give me the pen. I like you, <laughs> you know? And uh, Howard was absolutely unbelievably supportive. And that was it. So, uh, so I drove back and I... I spoke to my wife at the time, Julie, and I said, uh, well, I'm playing for Everton now. And that was uh, uh, that was that done. And, and to win the league that first year that I was there and play 40 out of 42 games uh, was, uh, you know, totally unexpected, but, but fantastic season. Yeah, it's an interesting season that actually, because uh, many people, of course, remember the 1984-85 uh, the version of the Everton team that won the, uh, the league almost won the Leading Cup double and, of course, won the, the Cup Winners' Cup. But a couple of years later, that season, that first season, you were there. In, to my mind, being, a, being an Evertonian, I think that was possibly an even bigger achievement given that, as you mentioned, about injuries, uh, particularly in the first half of the season, the, the, the first team sheet at, at Goodison Park was pretty much unrecognisable from what went before the, the, the couple of years previous. So to have won the league with chopping and changing the team every week, uh, you were pretty much the uh, only constant uh, throughout the whole campaign. Uh, yeah, but that, that was because I was able to play in two positions, really, yeah. you know, I suppose. Um, but you, you're right, but we had players like Alan Harper, who was on the bench, mm. uh, Kevin Richardson, who was on the bench, both really good players. So, you know, if we got injuries to Peter Reid and Paul Bracewell, Either of those two could come in and, uh, and fill in there. At the same time I went there, Ian Snodding was signed. Uh, Snodds could play wide right or he could play at right back. Mm. You know, so, so we, we had players that were, and I'm sure that's down to Howard or his, or his scouting staff or his coaching staff that could recognise uh, players that could play with a little bit of flexibility, you know. Mm. And that's, so we were able to, to cover um, certain positions 
um, with a limited squad, as it were. But yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was good to play that season because I mean, as a left back, you know, uh, I'd get the ball at my feet, I'd look up. Kevin Sheedy would be standing there in a load of space, demanding the ball of me. All I had to do was pass it five yards to him. <laughs> and then I didn't have to worry about anything else, just go up and support him or maybe make an overlapping run past him. Uh, or if he was tightly marked, uh, Graham Sharp was showing up front and I could drop it into him, knowing full well that he'd uh, hold the ball up better than anybody in the league at the time. Mm. So, so my job was easy. All I had to do was get it into these players and... Uh, you know, I was I was under a lot less pressure. Um, in the 1987 interview, your biggest claim to fame was that you had had your photo taken with Mick Jagger and Pele in New York. How did it come about that those two got to have a picture taken with the great Paul Power? <laughs> well, we uh, we played in a tournament. It was called the, the Transatlantic Tournament. And so um, this was while Malcolm Allison was manager. So... Uh, there was Manchester City and Roma were this side of the Atlantic and uh, New York Cosmos and the Vancouver Whitecaps were uh, with the And they had a big uh, uh, English influence. Alan Ball played, um, you know, they had, they had quite a few English players in their team. Uh, and of course, um, the great Pele had played for the New York Cosmos and I think was still probably based in, in and around that area. Dennis Stewart was playing for us. He also represented the New York Cosmos and, and, and had been voted their most valuable player. Of, I don't know whether Mick Jagger was, was actually in a concert, maybe somewhere in the area and came to the game. But anyway, they came down to the dressing room area after, uh, after the game. Uh, we got beat by uh, the New York Cosmos in the final. But... Um, uh, they they came into the dressing room to say hello to everybody, and uh, you know we managed to get a photograph taken. The players were scrambling more to have the photographs taken with these two legends, you know, than uh, uh, than they were concerned about the result. To be fair, and I've still got the photograph somewhere around, but um, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was a nice memory. Yeah. Um, so, Paul, what happened to you after football? Um, in in the, the 1987 interview, uh, you were asked what other job you would like to do, uh, to which you replied that you wanted to sell clothes to men's outfitters. Now, um, I don't think you've gone on to do that, but what, what happened once you finished playing? Yeah, I think, I think some of those answers, by the way, would be influenced by people that were in your life at the time. I had a, a close friend and neighbour called John Wright who used to, uh, he used to sell um, clothes to men's outfitters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like... He spoke labels like Yves Saint Laurent and he'd, he'd sell them to, uh, and he used to sort, sort my gear out for me. So if I, if I bought a suit, I'd go over to, I'd go over to his house and say, look, I want, I want a shirt and tie to go with this suit, like, you know, and he'd sort it out. He'd advise me. And I was always interested in that, to be fair. And in fact, I roomed with Dennis Stewart, who used to buy Gentleman's Quarterly magazine every blinking month. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when I roomed with him, he, he used to throw GQ magazine at me and say, you better bloody read that, you know, when, <laughs> when, he, when he saw the state of my clothes and everything. But <laughs> I, always, I always found it interesting. You know, we, we used, like Mike Summerby had his own uh, bespoke shirt business and, uh, and we used to go to um, a shirt manufacturer called Newman in Manchester near, near Piccadilly Station. 
and they used to have a whole range of shirts that you could pick from and they'd only be about a fiver each, you know, because they used to give us a deal. So it was always, uh, uh, you know, quite influenced by that. Mm. Um, but now I've got to say that that would be one of my least uh, favourite choices to go, to go into that game. Because I know my neighbour, Johnny, used to travel all over Lancashire and uh, could be a little bit frustrating if you went somewhere and nobody bought any gear off you, like, you know, so yeah. that would get on my nerves. Yeah. But, yeah, at the, end, at the end of my career, playing career, uh, Colin Harvey invited me to go on the, uh, the coaching staff at Everton. I had problems with my knees, so he knew that I wouldn't be able to play as much. Um, so he invited me to go on the coaching staff. Unfortunately, uh, I absolutely loved uh, working with um, Mick Lyons and Terry Darracott, Graham Smith, who was a youth team coach, all massive Evertonians, uh, and Colin Harvey, of course, no one, no one with a greater history uh, as an Evertonian. And to be asked to, to sort of join that squad was, uh, was a great privilege and an honour. Uh, and I enjoyed my time there. It was a le- like I say, it was a learning experience for me. Uh, I worked the first year with uh, Mick Lyons with the young players in the reserves. And then in the, at the end of that season, and I got my coaching qualifications from the FA, Colin asked me to, to work more with the first team, which, which I thought was a bit premature for me, but I was happy to do the job. Anyway, things didn't work out with the team. They were about eighth or tenth in the league, which for Everton at that time wasn't mm. good enough. Um, so Colin lost his job. Uh, all those players that I just mentioned, all those coaches that I just mentioned, uh, also uh, were told to report back to the club on the Friday morning. This, this was the Wednesday afternoon when they appointed uh, Howard. Howard came back from Man City, uh, so we, I went in on the on the Monday morning. Uh, sorry, on the Friday morning, hung my dress, uh, clothes up in the dressing room as normal. Terry Darracott's clothes were all hanging up in the, in the uh, dressing room. I went for a soak in the bath, which was, you know, sort of uh, customary then. Got back into the dressing room to put my training gear on. All Terry Darracott's gear had gone. All his casual clothes had gone. So I thought it was a bit strange, like, because him and Howard were, were, were mates, you know. Mm. So anyway, I went upstairs. Howard came into the coach's room and he said, we got a minute sunlight, you know, so I, I went uh, and he gave me the bad news that, uh, that uh, you know, I wouldn't be involved in his coaching staff. I walked past Colin Harvey and Colin Harvey had all his kit on and uh, he was in the corridor and he said, um, and he just sheepishly let on call and I, I just wondered what was going on. Anyway, uh, I spoke to Howard, he said, I've decided to keep Colin here as my assistant how it used to be during the good old days, you know. So, uh, so that was totally understandable. Uh, he said, and we're keeping Jimmy Gabriel to work with us. Um, he said, I've just had to get rid of my best mate in football, Terry Darracott. Uh, and then Lindsay was going and, uh, and the U-team coach as well. So, you know, as, a, as the youngest of all, and inexperienced of all those coaches, it was, it was quite right that uh, I wouldn't be kept on as well. Yeah. Uh, but but then I had a choice. I I could either then go into coaching or management at a club that, because of my Lancashire background and and sort of playing all my football in the northwest, 
I would have probably gone to Oldham or Rochdale or Blackburn or Bolton maybe. You know, it would have been, I would have been limited to that sort of choice. And then I would have had to have a lot of luck, uh, you know, to get success at a club like that. And then I was I was invited uh, by um, um, a lad called Roger Reed, who used to work in the community programme in professional football, uh, to think about applying for a job with the PFA. Or it wasn't the PFA, it was... A, it was the PFA were part of the FFA and VTS, which was uh, the Football League, the FA and the PFA, all uh, representing football groups in the community programme in professional football football and there was an area manager's job there and, it, and the salary was about the same I was on as an Everton coach so you know I wasn't going to lose out financially and um, so I thought well that had offered me a little bit more security than you know applying for a manager's job at Oldham or wherever probably not at Oldham then because Joe Royal was manager of Oldham at the time and uh, doing a fantastic job with Willie Donachie but you get my drift yeah and um so, so I decided to work in more administrative post in uh, for the for the PFA. Then I was asked um, after I'd been area manager in the in the community program, and Everton was one of the clubs that were that was under my uh, area management, if you like. Alan Alan Whittle was the uh, was the uh, community officer uh, at, uh, at Everton. And uh, Brian Hull was the community officer at uh, Liverpool. Um, but he, and also, I was responsible for Manchester City, Manchester United, where Dave Ryan, who'd been appointed from Stockport County. Stockport County was another of my clubs, Wrexham, Chester. So it was, a, it was a nice sort of mix of clubs. And each one had a, had a different... Um, a different part of the community that they wanted to attract to the club. Everton wanted to attract all the schools and get all the young kids involved in soccer schools, uh, coming, to, coming to games. Oldham wanted to get into the Asian community because they used to go home from school and just play cricket. They weren't interested in football at all, you know. L Liverpool wanted to, uh, wanted to attract older people to the club because a lot of older residents lived around the club and every two weeks, all these people come littering the streets and messing, mm. you know, making a noise past the doorway. So they all had different um, parts of the community that they wanted to attract. And it was a, an interesting job from my perspective to, you know, to, um, to try and balance uh, the requirements of the community programme with the requirements of each individual club. So uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. And then I got more involved in... The coaching side. So I used to do the uh, the preliminary coaching badge for all the young uh, YTS players at the clubs. You know, so mm. I'd worked I'd worked with them before as coaches. So we used to do City and United uh, YTS together, Liverpool and Everton. You know, and um, and that got back, got me back into the coaching side. And Gordon Taylor invited me to uh, sort of head up a coaching department of the PFA. Um, which, to be to be honest, I think Gordon intended ousting um, uh, Charles Hughes from the FA because you know Charles Hughes was advocating 
direct football all mm. the time. English football was becoming a bit of a, a laughing stock on the continent. All the all the sudden European teams like from Spain and Italy were all uh, the club teams were were progressing much better than we did. Maybe the Dutch influence of Johan Cruyff at uh, at Barcelona and the Dutch teams generally, you know, were all played a better style of football than uh, we were advocating in England at the time. So I got involved in the administrative side of coaching um, through the coaching uh, department of the PFA. It offered me chances to travel abroad. abroad. I went to uh, Australia to do some coaching there. And, you know, I, I enjoyed that. And then uh, I was sort of responsible for writing a report about the way forward for English youth development um, which was called a kick in the right direction and it was funded by the PFA. It was presented to the FA and Doug Ellis was uh, was the, the sort of head of the committee that, that I reported to and uh, he supported, you know, everything that was in the report. So I was quite surprised because mm. I thought they'd be pretty much at loggerheads, you know. The report was excellent, well received uh, by everyone except Charles Hughes, as you might imagine. Mm. Uh, and then, um, and then I got offered a job as a result of that, and, and it's uh, recommendations by Francis Lee, uh, who was chairman of Manchester City at the time, uh, and a fellow called Des Coffey, who was a, a head of education uh, at Manchester City. So a combination of an education program and a coaching program for the YTS was going to be uh, uh, installed at Manchester City, and um, uh, I was asked to take some responsibility for that so uh, you know it it was a great opportunity for me to have a second uh, spell at at the City as well so that was pretty well um, you know it took me right through to um, 2014 I think I lost my job at City because they had a change around the the head of the academy at the time Jim Cassell was moved on um, and um, they they they, uh, they decided to change it over um, and have uh, a new system put in with a, a new head of uh, academy. Um, uh, so that was the writing was on the wall pretty much then. Anyway, I was 59 then, so I was quite happy to accept, um, you know, retirement and uh, and a payoff from the club. Love the club as much, still do now. My son works for them. Uh, you know, as an administrator in in the academy. Um, and I love going back there. But, um, you know, I'd all, we'd always talked about retiring to France. Um, and it just came maybe a little bit earlier than I'd anticipated. But here we are now and uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now just as much as I did during my whole working career in football. Yeah. Um, and finally, if if you look back at yourself in the 1980s, and if you could, if you could go back and dispense one piece of advice to yourself, what would it be? Well, um, it was it would be a piece of advice that I was given by Keith McRae. Keith McRae was a goalkeeper. He was a good goalkeeper, Scottish goalkeeper, but he he was understudy most of the time to Joe Corrigan. But he was bright as a button uh, intellectually, and uh, he said to me. He saw me picking my wages, my wages up from the from the office upstairs, and it was in cash. You know, he said, "What are you doing, picking up loads of cash?" Like, 
well, not loads of cash, by the way, because it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't but he said, you should have that paid into a bank account. You should get yourself in a pension fund and you should buy a property. And, uh, and I thought, right, okay. Um, and that is now what I would say to these uh, young players is look to the future because you, your future in football isn't going to be that long. You know, uh, the PFA organised for uh, players to retire when they're 35. So, you know, you, the, the average player might, might finish through injury before that. He might go on like, say, uh, some of the more fortunate ones and probably uh, nowadays with the physiotherapy that they get and everything and the fitness coaches to look after them, they might play till they're 37, 38, but not much longer. Uh, you know, you've got a long working life after that. Uh, so make sure that you make arrangements financially for when, you, for when you're on a lower wage after you finish playing football. And um, I would definitely uh, say that. I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, I used to love uh, Neil Young. He was my hero watching him play. He ended up as a milkman in the Manchester area. I didn't have to do that. He was a much better player than me, you know. Uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have to finish my career as a milkman. Um, not that there's any discredit in that. If you're going to be a milkman, be the best milkman that there is. If you're going to be a street sweeper, be the best one that there is, you know. But make yourself financially stable so you can choose what you want to do. That would be the uh, advice that I'd give to any young player now. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today uh, and picking through these couple of old interviews and reminiscing about your life and career. So thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been uh, a reminiscing exercise for me as well. So thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.